This is The Business of Life with Jan Arden and Arlene Dickinson, a weekly podcast and radio show. Listen to The Business of Life on demand by subscribing and downloading it wherever you listen to podcasts. On this episode... We all have these soundtracks that make up so much of our memories, whether they're good memories or bad memories or things that were traumatizing. Um, You know, even still at my age, I can have a really crappy day and put a song on and play it 10 times in a row, Arlene, and feel vindicated somehow or feel healed. It's like a balm, a salve for the soul. I'm just, I'm always astounded by the power of music. All coming up with Jan Arden and Arlene Dickinson. Jan. Arlene. Where are you? I'm in Calgary, Alberta. I'm sitting in my kitchen. I look fantastic. No, I don't. (laughs) And, um... It's this beautiful day. It's finally above, I'm going to say, minus 15, so it's almost tropical. I feel like taking my clothes off and running around the yard to celebrate. Well, you know, we always send each other pictures when we're, we're doing this, so maybe don't put that one over the World Wide Web. I don't think that's a good I don't want to make you pe- running. I always say when somebody's not listening to me, like, what are you, running naked through a field of flowers while I'm talking to you, like, like dreaming about something else, like you're not here? Well, speaking of pictures, like you sent me a picture of you, I sent you a picture of me mm-hmm. uh, before we went before we started our conversation, and Which I said how great do. I said how great you looked, and um, it didn't go over very well. So my quandary, maybe this will start here, is why are we so reluctant to receive compliments or any kind of accolade or any kind of what what what's the problem? I don't know. I don't know when you when you said that to me. I, I think it's because there's this standard of the, what, what beautiful is that is so unattainable, and, and you know the your eyes are perfectly spaced apart, and you've got full lips, and you, like all that oh, whole God. thing, right? And I think that it's um, you know instead of saying when you say to me you think I look beautiful, I think well that's just a kind friend saying no, you know, it's nice not. things. But no, but I don't say that to have you say that I am beautiful. I, I I know I'm beautiful to myself. I feel I I don't feel like I need to. Um, I, I just don't feel like beautiful like by beauty standards. How's that? I I don't feel like there's beauty in the in the fashion world, and there's a standard of beauty that I just think is so unattainable. And then we, as young girls, especially, we were okay. Uh, yeah. So st- statistically, that's always a tough word. Statistically. Um. Women in fashion magazines generally, like the the general look of women in fashion magazines, and you know that there's a real commonality with how they look. Sometimes it's hard to tell people apart um, just because it is so mathematical, the spacing of the eyes, the nose, the shape of the face, the body, blah, 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 is I think like less than 2% of, of the entire world population that adheres to that kind of mathematical dimension in a face and it does change from culture to culture like each culture has its own idea of body shape like there's some countries that love that renaissance you know rubenesque figure they want you know a more curvy woman and then there's other cultures where it's you know definitely thinner or um i don't think there is a standardized thing all i know is that when i am attracted to somebody and, and I'm, i would be lying if it wasn't something physical um whether that physicality means that they're super good looking, usually no. But when I'm attracted to somebody, it is humor. It's intellect. Mm-hmm. It's it's that it's that um, indescribable it. Does that make sense? 
Totally. That's, I mean, that, totally. Like all the men I've ever been attracted to, the, the really good looking ones generally were the ones that weren't that nice. And the ones that had a great sense of humor were, that, no, that's, oh, wait a minute. Wait. Wait. <laughs> that was me putting on the brakes. That was just the most <laughs> ridiculous thing I just said. So you can't have a sense of humor and also be good looking. Yes, you can be. And I have another stat for you that's completely as a little bit of a segue here. Um, how many people do you think are naturally blonde? You just said how many people. Well, it ain't me. I, I think it's very, very, very low. I think most blondes are absolutely chemically induced. Let's put it that way. Because my blonde is really hard to, to keep. It's hard to maintain. It's expensive. Uh, your hair breaks off if you're not careful. The goddamn shampoo that I have to buy to keep it from going yellow and it does, it goes yellow, and it doesn't take long for it to go yellow, maybe two, three weeks. So that shampoo's like 70 bucks. Wow. Like, it is It is a pain in the butt. My hair, I was, I'm going to say, is very, very dark blonde or super, super light brown, whatever you want to say, but it is not blonde. Okay, so being naturally blonde is pretty rare. 2% of people in the world are natural blondes. That's in the world. And 1 in 20 Americans are. One in 20. But I bet if you look down the street, it would be more like 10 in 20. Like most people have dyed their hair blonde. Why do you think that is? Why is blonde, uh, um, is it, why is, like, uh, I'm speaking as a redhead now. Like, why aren't more people don't dye their hair red? Well, why blonde? I don't know. It must be fashionable. I mean, I feel like, you know, when you we we have the uh, technology to do it now, which is easier. I mean, in my mom's day, I remember mom being blonde for about five seconds and she just wrecked her hair. It was all bleach. And I think it's easier to do now. It's easier for women to go blonde, but maybe that's the power of the internet. Maybe that's advertising. Maybe that's what, that's the ticket that they're handing out to us now. You don't see a lot of men dyeing their hair blonde. I always think it's very weird to see a blonde man, don't you? You don't see a lot of men doing anything that's stupid with them <laughs> like this way. I mean, honestly, you don't see them plucking their eyebrows, shaving their legs, you know, dyeing their hair. Um, um, excuse me very much. Well, um, some um, do, My but friend. Some, some. There's so many. My friend does waxing. My friend Robin does waxing. And... Um, we were talking about this one day, and she does a lot of men now, like yeah, half her clients. Men are doing the waxing uh, thing. Whatever the fitness, they're doing chest, they're doing their private areas, ouch. They are doing their, ar sex, they're doing their sex forearms. Is, sex is better when they do that, just so you know. Oh, my God. Can we please open this box? What are you talking about? Are you talking about friction? Please do. I got do Adam's tell. attention. I got Adam's attention. He's like, he, he was like falling asleep. I thought, what can I possibly say? But, uh, you know, I think the shape... I want you to expand on that. No, I'm I not think... going to expand on that. Yeah, let Why your imagination not? run wild. Like, just imagine it. Like, just think about it. Send your letters to Arlene Dickinson, 1237 <laughs> Bay Street, Toronto, Ontario. Adam just left to go get waxed. I don't know what's happened. He's gone. Or <laughs> he's gone. Um, so at the end of the day, they maybe are getting waxed more often, but they're not. Well, actually, men's makeup is coming out now, and men's hair. Like there, there is more of a, um, a a swing towards men doing some of the things that women have done for a long time. But I've always they're doing they're doing just as much plastic surgery now. Yeah, I've heard that that they're doing a lot of plastic surgery. No, they're getting pectoral implants, which I guess would be... What? Uh, yeah, very, very much like a like breast women. implant, eh? Sort of? 
hacks. Like, yeah. you know, why work out every day when you can get these plastic things put in your chest? They're getting calf implants to make their calves look big. Even, <laughs> so, I mean, even men that, that work out, they're like, yeah, I can really get my chest and my arms big, but I can't get my calves big. There was and some so guy calf implants. There was some guy getting a penis implant, a penis enlargement, <gasps> and who died. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, no, I don't know is, what's going on with Arlene today. This is true. It is true. He this died. Is, he died. He was a very, very wealthy man, and he went to get a penis enlargement, and he died. And I think it's horrible that somebody would like. It's are you like, reading the Enquirer? Where are you getting? No, this is true. Adam saw it too. We saw it. It's on the World Wide Web. It is not fake news. It is true. It is true. And I felt really bad because, you know, like that, I just think, at uh, any rate, here was a guy his who name, literally his name was His name was Ehud Eri Lenedo. You just found him? Yep. E-H-U-D, and his last name is L-A-N-I-A-D-O. That's sad. And, and he, had, uh, he was quite wealthy. He's, okay, can I just say here, I'm just quickly glancing at this article. He died of a heart attack um, in the middle of the operation. So if I can just, I just want to back up here a little bit for gentlemen that are thinking of, I've never heard of a penis enlargement, but um, he died of a heart attack on the table, which is a far cry. Adam, just Adam, producer in Toronto, please, please heed my words. It, not, it wasn't because of anything that went wrong with his wiener. It was a heart attack. Well, it doesn't matter what happened. It was like he this died. Is the That's weirdest true. radio show we've ever done. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on. Uh, you know what I think it is? You know, you, know what's what? you know what's wrong with me today? What? F and daylight savings time. Like, I don't even know if I'm coming or going or what time I'm supposed to wake up or what time I'm supposed to go to bed. Still bothering me, Jan. I don't like okay. it. I don't like it. Do you like it? Listen, the people of Saskatchewan are onto something. They do <laughs> not change daylight savings. They just stay right where they are. The cows do exactly what they're doing. The chickens crow when they want to crow. Not the chickens, they're, they're the roosters. Um, the chickens are crowing I, in Saskatchewan. That's interesting. Listen, that's a problem. But I, I don't, I don't get um, daylight savings. There, there's always these these funny things on the internet. You know, someone said, you know, famous uh, Aboriginal, uh, you know, saying is that it's it's this, it likens someone cutting a ro uh, the end of a carpet off and then attaching it to the other end. It makes no sense. Huh? Um, <laughs> Like like cutting a piece of rope off one hey. end and attaching it to the other end is it doesn't make any sense at all, or a carpet or whatever you want to make the comparison to. But daylight savings, I would imagine, used to be an agricultural thing to help people do the harvest to make it. I don't know. What, what I'm going to look mean? it up. Daylight savings time. Why do we do it? I think I think it's a conspiracy. Okay, what does it say? It says daylight savings time. It says, um, I don't know why more people don't miss flights because of that crazy crap. It's a practice. Uh, it, it just says that you do, you're doing it because you want more sunlight, but I don't think, I don't know. There's, it, it doesn't even make sense to me. You get the same amount of sunlight. It's just a different, the hands of the clock are in a different place. It doesn't give you more sunlight it just changes where that sunlight what time of day it's at i i would rather not do it but who am i to talk i, I think I it's All do you I know, know what it costs an unbelievable amount of money to do daylight savings why does it cost us a lot of money i don't okay. get it what costs us money 
I don't know. I just I, I've read many articles that it costs the government a lot to do it, just because it is changing schedules. It's whatever. I I don't know. You're asking me. I don't. I'm a musician. I'm not even supposed to have an opinion about anything. <laughs> Listen, the problem too is, and most people can will agree with me. None of my clocks get changed. I just do math. I add an hour or I subtract an hour until the clocks, in six months' time, become relevant again. That is how I do things. The clock in my car, I always have to remind myself, oh my God, it's eight o'clock, not seven o'clock, or it's nine o'clock, not eight o'clock. Like, I never change my clocks. And my clocks are high up. They're, they require me getting a ladder and going to do it. And my car, I don't know how to change the clock on my car. And I'm not about to Google it. Somebody will probably write me and say, just Google it. They'll tell you how to change it. I don't care. I don't want to know. So the only thing that gets changed is my watch. And thank God, my smartphone has the smarts to change its own damn time. Well, there you go. That's a rant. That's a rant on daylight no, savings. No, it's not a rant. No, it was a pretty good, No, we all don't like it. Let's, let's change it. Let's change it. Who do we talk to? I don't know. Nobody. It doesn't even matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah you, you know what does matter? Whatever you're going to say next. Mm. Ain't that the truth? Well, um, I got, wait, I got something. I got something. I got something I got to say. You I got are something. Loopy. I got something. So, talking about songwriting, because you said something, I'm just a songwriter. I tweeted out yeah. something. I, I tweeted out something, and guess who tweeted me back? <sighs> Neil Young. No, not Neil Young. Gordon Lightfoot. Not Gordon. No, uh, but some, Justin Bieber. No, yes. Sean Mendes. Yes, it was Justin. It was Justin no. Bieber. No, it was not. It was not Justin, but okay, it was to geez. me. To me, it was like okay because I love his songwriting. He told me I could write songs, and that was and it was Bruce Guthrie. Do you know Bruce Guthrie? From Nova Scotia, yes, very I good love his songs. Yes. I love his songwriting. He told me I could be a songwriter, Jan. In think what I could, regard? Like, I don't even know how to. Well, I don't know. He just said you could write songs, and I want to know could I? Because okay, I, is it because of something you tweeted? Uh, you know, anyone could write a song if you're paired up with somebody. You know, if you were, you write very poetic things. You, your oh. your tweets are often very inspiring these days, and people don't. People always think that songs are supposed to rhyme. There's many, many, many a song that don't rhyme. If you were to read them <laughs> outside of listening to their musicality, no, they don't rhyme. So what? But they how sound do you start, like they rhyme because of how they're sung. Do you write? Do you, okay, I, I have music a question. And lyrics at you, the same time. Oh, can you write? Can you start with lyrics and then add, or and then add music, yeah. or can you like? How does it work? Tell me. I just tell wrote me how a song. Works. I just uh, okay for me. I write lyrics and music at the same time when I'm on my own, when I write by myself, which is 89% of the time. So I will strum a chord or hit a chord on the piano and I'll just start, I'll just start scribbling things down. I don't even understand it. I'm usually done in an hour or 90 minutes tops. Um, but like recently I, I wrote a couple of songs with one of our cast members from my show, the Jan show. And um, Zoe Palmer, who plays my sister, there's, there's one episode where we sing a song to our mother. And I said to Zoe Palmer, I said, we should write something together. And, you know, because it'll mean more to both of us to sing this to our mother. And uh, I assumed she was a songwriter because I've heard her sing on other TV shows, um, which was not really the truth. But anyway, we, we wrote a lyric together. 
and I, I did the music. Um, we've since gone on to write a couple of other things because we really did well that way. And like she sent me like a lyric. She didn't think it was a song lyric, but she, she sent me this little piece of a poem or it didn't rhyme or anything like that. And I just thought, this is so musical. And so I wrote some music to it. And it's a really, really beautiful song called The Moment. I think that's what it's called right now. So that was a different experience of taking a lyric and writing music to it, which I really, really loved. When I write with Bob Rock, he, he brings music to me, and he has like a groove or a chord progression, and then I write lyrics to that and melody. So it all depends what the configuration is. All I know is that when you make that kind of art something out of nothing, it's really a magical feeling, and it just it lifts you up. It just fills your entire chest cavity with this this buzz and this hum. Um, it's the most unique feeling I've ever had in my life, and it always trumps everything. It trumps being in love, it trumps relationships, it trumps any kind of instant gratification thing, whether it's drinking or drugs or smoking a cigarette. Songwriting for me is, is truly a drug, and nothing makes me feel higher. I need to try it. It sounds, it sounds pretty damn good. Like, but, uh, but you know when you But say, you could. Bruce isn't wrong. Well, first of all, he's kind, and I <clears throat> and I do love his music. So those of you who are listening, <clears throat> excuse me, who don't know Bruce Guthrow's music, listen to him. He's got songs that have stayed with me for so long. When I listen to his lyrics, I feel like I'm right in the situation that he writes about. He's got one song where, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it, where he, he talks about being on a train um, to go back to visit his you, th- you don't know if, who it is but it turns out that it's his mother and uh, talks about seeing her and, and either I can't I don't know if he's dying or she's dying but one of them is dying and it's a kind of a last visit and it's just the most amazing song and I wish I just have having a moment where I can't remember the name of it but his music is fantastic and like yours Janet tells a story and I find that I am drawn to songs and songwriters who there's a there's there's something about the journey of the song that that stays with me that I love, you know I, I mean I love all music but I I, I struggle sometimes with the hip hop kind of mm-hmm. I'm just not sure what it's saying you know like some of it just doesn't seem real to me but maybe it's saying something to a generation well, that I just don't understand to, right yeah and and that's very normal that that that's a story that is timeless and it's not going to change. What our parents listened to was not what we listened to and and what their parents listened to was, you know, very different. So I think it's very generational, so you're right there. I think the thing that's so magic about music is that it, it unites us in in a really unprecedented way. Um you know, you'll see countries, you know, I've I've seen clips of Brian Adams for instance playing uh huge concerts all over the world whether it's South America or you know, somewhere in, in, you know, in Israel or in India, like Brian, he's, he's huge all over the world. For the, most people don't speak English. Like he'll, he'll go into these concerts and there's some English, but you know, to see 30,000 fans in a stadium singing along to summer of 69 or, or, uh, you know, the, the, the Robin Hood song, I would die for you. I'd lie for you. Um, his, I mean, the guy's got, he can play hits for five hours. It's his, his repertoire is astounding. But the fact that they're singing along to songs that they don't really know, it just resonates. We all have these soundtracks that make up so much of our memories, whether they're good memories or bad memories or things that were tra- traumatizing. Um, 
you know, even still at my age, I can have a really crappy day and put a song on and play it 10 times in a row, Arlene, and feel vindicated somehow or feel healed. It's like a balm, a salve for the soul. I'm just, I'm always astounded by the power of music. So when you talk about the power of music, what it, it brings me back to how some smells and some sounds and particularly music can take you back to this moment in time where you just vividly remember every single, you know, like where you were, what you were doing, what you were thinking. I mean, I still remember listening to Hey Jude. Like if I hear Hey Jude, I can go back to my junior high to a shag. Actually, it was a social because the socials were at night. The shags were the more of the fun dance thing. Okay, the I so- was worried there because the a, social- a shag in no, London is, is the, getting no, no. late. A shag, that's what they called it. They called it a shag and the social was the night one where, you know, so at any rate, um, you, and, and dancing, my first waltz with a you know young man i actually don't remember who it was so that's uh, but i remember i remember that feeling for the rest of my life thinking to myself is this song ever going to end (laughs) (laughs) so it was was a bad thing it was just so uncomfortable because i'd never done it before and it was seven minute track and it was like you you know you you were had your hand like i had my hands on his shoulders you know know, like and you were you were just shuffling around in a circle right and it was like i wish i could have seen you but i remember but my point is music has this wonderful way of taking us back and, and, and so just quickly tell me, when you write, are you writing in stanzas? Are you writing in, in like, like, how do you write? Are you writing two lines it's at definitely, a time? Yeah, it's definitely verse chorus. So I'll, I'll, it's such a mysterious process to me. You know, I've been writing music for like 45 years. And I'm still always frightened whenever I finish a song that I'm never going to write again. So there's always that going on. But when I'm in the middle of making up song let's call it making up because i don't read music i have no um academic sense of music i don't know what the sticks or the dots mean i don't know you know what i couldn't look at even a chord chart even what i'm playing on guitar i don't know what the name of the chords are so i play by ear really and yeah so so when i'm making up songs you know, I love words. I love how stringing words together can be so impactful. And I think the, the um, one of the biggest draws for me, certainly as a young person, like as an 11, 12, 13-year-old, was that I could sing things that I could not say. So for me, it, I mean, my dad was an alcoholic. I went to the basement to get out of his way, to not be around the fighting, to not have to be in his I don't know realm to be within arm's reach of the man and that's where the record player was was downstairs I've talked about this before but um, when I discovered that I could write things down and sing them like things I could never say out loud it really helped me as a young person and I'm still such an advocate of the arts for kids that are in trouble whether it's body image whether it's drugs whether it's you know alcohol whether it's bullying at school I think being, I think taking music out of schools, taking music out of public schools, taking those music programs away has been such a detriment to uh, a young person's development, how they can express themselves. It saved me. My older brother was not involved in things like that. And my older brother, and this is a shitty comparison, but he's been in jail for 26 years. 
You know what? You've never. And can you talk about? Are you okay talking about that? I'm. I'm fine. We've with never. It, yeah. We've never talked about that. Tell. Tell. I mean, well, not we haven't. We've never talked about that on the, on no. on the show. And I. I think you know you you well, the first time you told me your brother was in jail, I remember it stopped me thinking, wow, she's just so matter of fact about it. Like that is what's happened, and I'm dealing. Mm-hmm. We're dealing with it. And and you were you were just so supportive of him. And I. I do you want to tell the story? Is it something? Well. No, no. I mean, I can certainly give you the abbreviated version, but he, um, my dad was an alcoholic and my brother, you know, in very stereotypical fashion, got the brunt of his ire. Um, like I said, I stayed out of the way. My little brother is five years younger than me and he was in school. He, he, he got parented by two very different people than my older brother and I. Thank God. He still, Patrick still has his own issues with, uh, with my dad, but my brother just, he turned to alcohol. He turned to drugs. You know, he was picked on constantly. He always wanted my dad to be proud of him. And, um, hmm. you know, he just, he just, he never could seem to get that from my dad. So Dre just, he just started petty crimes, you know, uh, vandalism, drugs, alcohol charges. Then it was choking with intent. Then it was, it was sexual assaults. It was assaults. It was, it was uttering threats. It was, breaking an entry it just escalated and he was in and out of jail many many times as a young man my parents uh you know i think my mom was already dealing with her marriage trying to keep that going trying to keep the status quo in the household and um, they didn't have the kind of programs i think that are in place now Uh, my brother just got further and further away my mom used to say they're going to lock you up and throw away the key anyway fast forward dre went to jail at one point, uh, he was in there for three years for uh, assault charges. And then when he got out, uh, three or four months later, he was arrested again on a first-degree murder charge. He has always denied it. He was in uh, in the Kootenays, so he was in the Creston area of British Columbia. Uh, wrong place, wrong time. Like, I, I, it doesn't matter to me if he did it or not. And I know that seems like a very sweeping statement. But for my own preservation, I think for our family's preservation. We couldn't base our love for my brother and our acceptance and our forgiveness on whether he did or did not do something. How would we know? He's the only person on the planet that knows. But having said that, there was no physical evidence, zero. Um, the His case has been with uh, something called the Innocence Mission out of the British Columbia University, University of British Columbia, sorry, I'm being a bit dyslexic. And they've been working on his case for eight years. And well, they vet 2,000 cases a year of guys that are saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. Uh, Dre was one of the cases that they took. Wow. And uh, the lead investigator said there's no way he did this crime. Um, the RCMP uh, burnt all his, all the evidence that they had 10 years ago. Come on. They, nope. They put it in a pile and they burnt it. Holy. Um, they say that it's within their rights to do that. Um, but you know they've dug out. It, they they said it's one of the most poorly run like cases that they've seen in in 35 years. And I think what's scary for the Canadian government, and I'll say this wholeheartedly, I'm not. My brother is not a saint. My brother has done a lot of things. I believe him. Um, the evidence spoke for itself, uh, and it still speaks for itself. I mean, they still have a lot of things that they have to go on. So it, not everything is lost, but my brother's never changed a story. And you imagine someone being offered five years manslaughter. If you had killed somebody 
would it not be in your best interest to take that five-year manslaughter and go, boy, I got away with murder, you know, and serve three years of that manslaughter charge, which is very much the case across the board. My brother said I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And he ended up being charged with that murder. Um, he got 25 years without the possibility of parole. So here we are, 26 and a half years, because he doesn't accept responsibility of the crime, because he's always maintained his innocence. They're reluctant to par- parole him. And he's become institutionalized and in that he's period very, of time, his, right? His health is terrible. He, he's, he's, they keep pulling his teeth out. They won't even fill a cavity in prison. What? Uh, he's for, he's a type 1 diabetic. He's uh, very close to losing toes. Um, they, they've done everything to rip his soul apart that they could possibly do. And thank God my family has been diligent. We have visited him week after week, you know, month after month, year after year. It's funny, it's down to me now. Mom and Dad are gone. So it's just Patrick and I. And, uh, you know, we still visit him and still support him. And um, I've learned more about this experience, you know, just the way my parents dealt with it than you could possibly imagine. I got my record deal the same week my brother was arrested for that murder charge. And I always think about how Mom and Dad navigated that and how they stayed together is beyond me. But they did. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you just you stop me because so many people, we all have something in our lives that in our families that, um, and I and I, I don't know if this is the right word, but either it's embarrassing or it feels shameful or it feels mm-hmm. like you don't want to talk about it because people might judge you as a family as a result of that. And what mm-hmm. I, I continue and will always admire the very most about you, Jan, is that you you hold fast. You hold fast to what you believe and you stand up for that against anything and so um you know i first of all i think it's a abominable abominable i think it's horrible i think it's horrible that um the prison system has treated your brother that way especially if the innocence project has taken him on as a case which is like you said they they look at a lot of cases and they're obviously thinking that you know he is innocent but oh absolutely without a shadow of a doubt and they they put a 400-page document together that took them years. It is the most fascinating, detailed um, deconstruction of one of the most flawed cases in in Canadian history, really. So, Jan, um, thanks for sharing that. What? What? I mean, I just it is it's kind of stopping me. I we we sometimes we laugh and sometimes we cry and. That just really made me cry, just thinking about how hard that must have been for your your parents and for you and, and well for and everybody for, yeah, for everybody. But what for the young for the young lady and her family that that lost their daughter's life? I mean, this is a young lady yeah. that you know had a small child, and uh, you know uh, it's always complicated. And but things do go wrong. There are mistakes made in in cases all the time. And that's been proven time and time again. Even if you want to think, go back and think about David Milgard, which was a very, very famous wrongful conviction. And, you know, David struggled the rest of his life um, with addiction and all kinds of things. My dog's barking. Um, anyway, it just, it, there's, lots of, there's lots of things that can go wrong. And I think when you have a record as long as my brother did, uh, and when you are in a, an isolated community, a small community, 
you know, fingers just get pointed. The, the community wants it solved quickly. They want somebody held responsible. You know, the, the police are probably undermanned, you know, underfunded. They, they just, they grabbed him and they never looked at anything else. Nothing else was considered. And they will tell you that the documentation is, is very clear. They never looked at anybody else. They never pursued it. It was done. That's where it stopped. And they did everything they could just to get a conviction. So on that side of things, yes, I understand the pressures of a community. We all want the bad guy put away. But when you put the wrong guy away, um, but the, when, when the community looks at a guy like my brother and they go, well, he's an idiot. He's, he did this, 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 and this. He's got a really, really long record. And they just don't care. And, and that's fine, too. I, I'm always wondering, boy, if it wasn't my brother, would I care? And so it, it makes you, it, it holds you, you know, to a higher amount of questioning. Like I, obviously, I was in a position where I had to ask all these questions and, and do what I could to help my brother. But I, I still hope that he gets out. I was um, saying to you on the break, Arlene, that, you know, I lied to my mom the last year and a half of her life and told her that Dre was out. I told her that he had a house. She'd always forget because my mom suffered from Alzheimer's, as everyone knows. And she would just go, did he? I said, he's got a nice apartment and he's, you know, he's got a nice job. And she just, she would cry and she goes, well, that's the greatest. And I thought, I don't care. I don't yeah. care that I'm lying. I'm going to tell her that. <laughs> I don't know why Belle's barking. I should put her out. But um, anyway, it's, it's, it's sad for everybody. It's a, it's a terrible thing. It's the, the prisons are overcrowded. You know, when Dre went to, I won't say which penitentiary he's in, but when he went, um, you know, they were, you know, there was 400 guys in there and now there's 1200 guys wow. and they are beyond capacity. So it's, um, it's hard on everybody. Yeah. And there, and it seems to me that there's, they really, the system is, is very broken and, and the whole the whole penal system is broken. Very much so. Everything about how we, um, you know, I mean, listen, there, there's, 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 I don't know. It's just, it's just beyond, it, it's, it's the saddest thing in the world, human lives. And, you know, when people do bad things, they should be, they should be punished um, for sure. But is, but if they haven't proven anything, then that is absolutely abhorrent. Like that you mm -hmm. can't, how do you? I thought you were innocent until proven guilty. I thought I thought the whole system was about you. You couldn't be jailed until they proved that you committed and I, a crime. And I think I mean, for the most part, Arlene, it is a system that does work. And occasionally, you know, I I, I don't want to like make these sweeping statements that it, it's completely flawed. I think no. we have one of the best judicial systems on the planet, but occasionally. Something gets through the cracks. And my brother's case is a perfect example of when everything goes extraordinarily wrong. Yeah. And, um, and you can't undo is, it. You can't go back. No, it's like you once can't it goes, it. yeah, it starts rolling and, and it just becomes a mess onto itself, right? The mess yeah. just becomes bigger and bigger and nobody wants to unravel it because it means going back and pointing a finger at somebody or, or actually doing hard work to figure out what went wrong somewhere along the line. And nobody wants to do that. It, it's like the same things that happen in the internet when things go suddenly, a, uh, you know, what is it that a lie can be halfway around the world before you take your pants off, right? Or in the morning, yeah. isn't there that, that statement? Like, but 
but it's true, right? Like people, and then it, eventually it's hard to find out where it even started, and it's hard to even uh, get to the truth. And the truth is a very difficult thing to find when yes. you're dealing with complex systems. Yes. But I, I have faith. I believe in the University of British Columbia. I believe in all the young people, the, the young law students that they've had go through a fine-tooth comb through thousands of thousands upon thousands of pieces of bits of paper and written this document that, that is in the right hands now. It still takes time, but there's definitely people looking at this case. I think they are shaking their heads in utter disbelief. And, and unraveling all this. And you have to imagine, 26 and a half years ago, many of the officers that were even involved in the initial crime are dead. Many of the witnesses that were, were involved, some of them are dead. Some of them are in their 60s or 70s that can't remember. Um, you know, they couldn't remember at the time, so they certainly aren't going to remember now. So, you know, whenever you deal with a, a cold case type of a situation where the paper trail gets smaller and smaller, you know, you do hold out for a miracle. And, and I think... Beyond anything, Arlene, my brother has paid a debt to society. And I'm talking about whether he did the crime or not. Um, he's paid a debt to society. He's done 25 years of his life. He's been in his life half his, or been in jail half his life. He'll be 60 years old. Or actually, he just turned 60 years old. And um, he was arrested at 32. So, um, you know, I think, I hope that he has a chance to get out there in, in the world and do a little bit of traveling, um, get some sun on his face, you know, uh, you know, find some friendships, you know, find a purposeful life. I, I believe it's still possible. He needs probably $30,000 worth of dental work. He needs to get his diabetes fixed up. They've really, really, really done a terrible job of his health, not only his health, but the health of many, many other men in our systems and women. It's, it's, it's something that really does need a lot of work. But, um, and I, and I would advocate for the men in prison, whether my brother was in there or not. I've learned a lot over the last 26 and a half years. I've met a lot of these guys. I've met men that he calls his friends. Um, many years ago, probably, gosh, tw over 20 years ago, I went with my guitar player and did a, a little concert for the lifers that were in the prison that my brother was in that didn't have anyone to come and visit them. So for all the guys that didn't have anyone that ever visited them, we did a little concert. And uh, I'll never forget it. I don't even know how I got through it. And I talked to every one of those guys afterwards, and I shook their hand and told them to, to you know, keep their shoulders back and to look forward and to, and to do better. You know, it was, it was quite, quite the time. You know, what's, what's, what, I mean, first of all, you're, you're an amazing human for doing that because we all need, we all need human interaction. But you, you, Who am I to judge? Yeah, well, you know, you made me think about something, and I want to talk to you about it on maybe next week when we talk, but I want to talk to you about nursing homes and retirement homes, um, in particular retirement homes. Um, and there's there's something about how we treat people who society no longer has purpose for mm -hmm. that is, is, it's just, it's it's wrong on every level, and yet I don't know how to fix it, you know? like So I, I'm not comparing a prison system to... A retirement home, although the, the institutionalization of the two is very similar. There's absolutely and, and, comparatives, yeah, and and it's it's really dehumanizing, and it doesn't take it's not respectful in, in any level. Like when I think about, I don't know if we have time today. How much time have we got today? Um, I'll, I'll we got three more minutes. I'll 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 just quickly. We can certainly we can certainly start it, darling. Yeah. Um. 
Did you just call me Listen, Darlene? Did you just call me Darlene or no, Dar- Darlene? I said Arlene. I said Arlene. No, you said Darlene. I called you. You called me I Darlene. I did not say Darlene. Okay, let's stop. Let, okay, let's go to a more humorous topic, um, Jen. Darlene, go ahead. So, okay, Jen, is this you, Jen? Where are you talking from? <laughs> oh my God! Oh my God! I get minds. Darlene all the time. Even Arlene, not, like, I did not call you, you Darlene. Did. You called me Darlene. I, what's on tape? I, I'm well, sorry. It's on Adam. Tape. We're gonna roll back. Okay, Adam. Let's play it back, Adam. We can certainly start at Darlene. Yeah. I had my that hand was, on my that jaw. That was so Darlene. <laughs> Arlene, listen to me. I had my hand. This is what I did. We can certainly get it started, Arlene. So I said, starred Arlene. No, I said, starred Arlene. So what you heard was starred Arlene. Oh, you sound like and, Donald and Trump it, saying that he was saying Tim Apple. But he said I'm it was not, really said Tim Apple Cook. Or he, he said it just, he said it's a shorthand. Oh, you're not my gonna, Lord. I have proof. Darlene. You're going to get a lot of barking right now because there's Squirrel TV is on big time at my house. I don't care what's going on at your house right now. Jen? Minnie, we are making a radio show. <laughs> You've got to stop it. The, the, the squirrel's taunting. They, he's got a little fork and a knife in his hand and a little um, napkin tied around. You, you would never call. I'm trying to change the you topic. Would never I call, not, you would never call Mitty Maxie, would you? You would never call Mitty Maxie. Okay, we probably have one minute left. Uh, my Right now, my... my my jaw is on my arm. I'm, I'm holding my head up with my arm. So I said, started Arlene. But so the way I said it, it sounded like a D in front of your name. I know who you are. Oh, my God. It's crazy around here. I, can't, I think we should wrap this up early, I, I Adam. Think so. I, it's been a day. It's been a, it's been a program. It really has. You know, our, Darlene is still on Daylight Savings. <laughs> And Jen, Jen from, doesn't from know six who months I ago. <laughs> I love you, Jen. Listen, uh, love you too, and talk to your friends, will yeah, you, folks? Talk just to talk to your friends. Yeah, let's talk to your friends. Thank you for listening to the Business of Life with Jen Arden and Arlene Dickinson, a weekly podcast and radio show. Subscribe and download the Business of Life wherever you listen to podcasts.